Well, hello. As you can see, this is not our normal Sunday service gathering recording. And that is because, unfortunately, we forgot to record today's sermon. So I'm re-recording it, not because I think it's a particularly great sermon, but because I think it's an important message for us as a church at this period of time. And we are billing today as our Giving Sunday. And if you're new to Westlake, okay, just so you know, we do not bang on a lot about money. Okay, not least because if you look at the research, one of the reasons that people say, I don't want to go to church, is this sense that they're just after my money. So we don't talk about it a lot. We don't talk about giving or money a lot. But today's going to be different. And not just because I am going to talk about money and giving to the church, but because of the way I want to do it. You see, just imagine that you started feeling strange in the head and you just get this sudden urge to read a book on how to preach. You'd have to be, be feeling pretty strange in the head to want to do that. But let's say you found a book on preaching and you picked it up and started reading it. It would almost certainly tell you something along the lines of, hey, if you want to preach well, you've got to, you've got to pick a passage from the Bible and then you've got to tell the people what that passage says. And then right at the very end, you've got to apply it to their lives. You've got to give them some application. You've got to give them some take homes. This is what you should go and do. Now, admittedly, that is not how I normally preach, but especially not today. Because today, I want to turn things upside down. Okay? I want to do things around the wrong way and get it all back to front. And I want to start with the application. And my reason for doing that is, hey, I just want to be honest and open about what I want you to go and do. And I don't want you to be going through, you know, listening to this, thinking, okay, where is this going? I want to be really clear up front what I'm asking you to do. And that is, I want us to look at the Bible, look at what the Bible says, and then I want each of us to go home and decide how much we are going to give to our building project as a church, you as an individual, me as an individual, and then act on that decision, preferably before the end of the month and at latest before the end of the year. Okay, that is the application. Now, before we look at the Bible reasons why I want you to do that, I want to give you some practical ones. We need to raise at least two million francs to be in a position to buy our new building. And because of what you have already given, we are currently at 1.8 million, which I think is amazing. But it also means we are short by around two to three hundred thousand. Now, of course, the total cost of the building is going to be somewhere around four million. So to reach two million is just enough to get us to the starting line. It's just enough to get to the 50 percent level where we can then go and take out a mortgage. OK, so that is two to three hundred thousand to raise. Now, when it comes to money, okay, I'm pretty simple. 
and Sue does all the bookkeeping in our family. So maybe my maths is wrong, but let's say that there are 200 of us. If each one of us were to give 1,000 before the end of the year, we could do this. We could make up this gap. But of course, some of us won't be able to give a thousand. We won't be able to give that much. And if that is you, I would just say to you, give what you can. And as you do, remember Jesus' words about the widow and her two copper coins. That that is as valuable, if not more valuable, as bigger gifts. But it also, so give, even if what you're going to give is smaller. But that also means that some of the rest of us are going to have to give considerably more than a thousand if we're to do this. Plus, the more we raise now, the less we will have to pay on the mortgage and the more we will have to kick the place out. So I would say this is totally doable. But to do it, we're going to need God to work on our hearts. We're going to need God to work on our hearts so, so that we want to give and so that we want to give with joy and give sacrificially, whether that is for the first or the third time. Which is why I want us to look at Acts and at what God was doing through Paul in Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth and Ephesus, four strategic cities, and what that might have to say to us here in Lausanne. And we're going to see three things. Okay. Firstly, Paul's ministry was gospel-centred. Secondly, it was campus and city-centred. And thirdly, it was others-centred. Okay. Firstly, it was gospel-centred. Now, sometimes people ask me, Martin, what does a pastor even do all day? Well, Luke tells us that in Thessalonica, Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And when he heads to Athens and speaks in the Areopagus, he says, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. And in Corinth, Luke tells us that Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. In verse 11, he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And then when he gets to Ephesus in chapter 19, he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. In verse 11, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Okay, so you are in Starbucks in first century Ephesus and you have the amazing opportunity to grab a coffee with none other than the Apostle Paul. And over coffee, you ask him, hey, Paul, 
What do you do all day? What's with this ministry gig? What would he reply? He would probably reply something like, what's with this ministry gig? Proclaiming the gospel, the life, the death, the resurrection, the rule and the reign of Christ and all the implications of that for all people in all places. But notice how he does it. Firstly, in culturally appropriate ways. In the synagogues to Jews, Luke tells us in chapter 17, verse 2, that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, showing them how Jesus was the Messiah and the fulfilment of all of their hopes as Jewish people. But on Mars Hill, to Greek philosophers, he quotes Greek philosophers and Greek poets, verses 27 to 28. He, God, is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. A quote from Epimenides. As even some of your own prophets, some of your own poets, sorry, have said, for we are indeed his offspring, which is a quote from Aratus. And he's shown them your search for meaning, your search for your very being, is answered in Christ. But secondly, he flexes the way that he does it. In the synagogues, he preaches. But in the Areopagus, it looks as though he uses the Socratic method, which the Greeks themselves used. But thirdly, while he flexes and while he shows how Christ fulfills the hopes and the desires of each culture, he also shows how the gospel confronts each culture. Luke tells us in verse 18 that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And those two groups held radically different views of what they thought the good life looked like. They were the left and the right of their day. But Paul sides with neither of them because the gospel is not left or right. It's not stoic or epicurean. The gospel is the gospel. It affirms where it can, stuff in a culture, but it also confronts. Now, what has all of that got to do with us? and giving to the building. Well, sometimes I hear things like, hey, Martin, what, what, what's your vision for the building? I'll, I'll give if you sell me a compelling vision. Okay, I, I understand that, right, I get that. But to me, that sounds like someone saying to a builder, what's your vision for that hammer? T tell me about the hammer. And the builder would look at them like they've got a screw loose. The hammer's a tool. And so is our building. A tool for the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. A tool to help us gather, grow and go. And Paul proclaims the gospel in culturally appropriate ways. It's what our mums do every Friday morning in the Ark Playgroup as mums reach out to mums. 
It's what our Christian academics group does as they reach out to their academic peers. It's what we're doing here on a Sunday morning, either here you know, in the foyer or downstairs with the kids or over the road with class and youth. But in each case, we're running out of space. We need a bigger hammer. And the building will give us the tools to continue to be but also to grow as a gospel-centred church where Christ is proclaimed as a fulfilment of all of our hopes and the answer to all of our desires and in ways that confront the Stoics and the Epicureans of our day. So, just as a taster, imagine this ground floor cafe space filled with young people. As we do a course like Agnostics Anonymous, which is what we're doing at the moment, where we try and answer the kind of questions that make them doubt the Christian faith. Imagine it filled with young people. Or imagine it after church being filled by our Christian academics group before they then go upstairs to have lunch using the kitchen and the combined meeting rooms. Or imagine students or young professionals using, or us oldies, using that as a co-working space in the week. Or imagine mums coming in there before moving upstairs for Bible study and creche. Or just take a look at the main meeting room with seating for five to six hundred people. And just think for a moment about music. Yeah, I know I've told you this before, but when I was converted, I started going to a great Anglican church where they sang the Wesley hymns and all the different parts of that. And I had never heard anything like it. Because there is nothing like the sound of the saints singing. And maybe you've heard that here on a Sunday morning or like on the retreat. What if we were to fill that room with the sound of singing? Not, God, you are so lucky to have me, but singing the gospel. Now, I think I've told you this before as well, but several years ago, I was invited to speak at the annual Thanksgiving service for one of the ancient City of London guilds. And it was a great experience. I had to process through the streets with the office bearers all wearing their robes and floppy hats. And we arrived at the church and it was full of all the great and the good. And right before I got up to speak, the choir sang Handel's Zadok the Priest, which if you don't know it, is one of the spine-tinglingly magnificent anthems. And then, it was me, and I was terrified. But as I spoke, I could see first this person and that person begin to weep. And afterwards, no exaggeration, I had a queue of people coming up to speak to me afterwards, shaking my hand and saying things like, I have never heard anything like that before. But what had they heard? What do you think I told them? A message about how great and good they are. A, 
a message about how great and good their charitable work is, which it is? No. I told them about the Good Samaritan and how you're the one lying broken and robbed in the street and how Christ comes to pick you up and pay all of your costs and how when you know that you have been neighboured by him you can go and be a good neighbour to those who aren't good and great. And for some of them in that church that day, that was the first time they had ever heard the gospel. But what tool, what hammer had God used to prise open their hearts so they could hear it for the first time? Wonderfully beautiful music. What if we were to use this building to do more of that kind of thing? So... What are we going to do with the building? We are going to proclaim the gospel in culturally appropriate and culturally confronting ways so that, as Jeremiah said to the exiles in Babylon, we seek the welfare, the shalom of the city where God has placed us. I want to ask you, will you give to see that happen? Now maybe you say, well, I don't know, I don't really feel called to give. If that's you, let me give you just a bit of a nudge. And I know this is a bit provocative, okay, get softer at the end. Okay, let me just give you a bit of a nudge from William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. Not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonised heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. And then look Christ in the face, whose mercy you have professed to obey, and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. Church, let us publish that mercy to the world, or at least to our little corner of it. But as you think about doing that, don't give out of guilt. Give out of the gospel. Give out of gospel joy. You know, when Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth, encouraging them to give to the suffering church in Jerusalem, he holds up the example of their Macedonian brothers and sisters. Because before the Macedonians gave financially, Paul says, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Why in that order? Because the gospel had taken root in their hearts. 
because they knew what Paul goes on to tell the Corinthians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Why should you give? Paul says, because the Son of God gave himself for us. And when you know that, you will want to give of yourself and of your resources to glorify him. Okay, so firstly, Paul's ministry was gospel-centred. Secondly, it was campus and city-centred. And this is so obvious it is easy to miss, but you know, if over the church retreat we saw Paul and Barnabas basing themselves in Antioch, here we see Paul proclaiming the gospel in Thessalonica, in Athens, in Corinth, and then in Ephesus, and they are all cities. Next year is the 50th anniversary of the framing of the first Lausanne Covenant on world evangelization. And John Stott, who framed the covenant, in his commentary on Acts, writes, it seems to have been Paul's deliberate policy to move purposefully from one strategic city centre to the next. Why? Well, obviously, cities are where people live and work, so more people can be reached by reaching the cities. And stating the obvious, Lausanne is a city, and our new building is going to be right in the middle of where people live and work. But Stott argues that Paul targeted cities for another reason as well. And that is the spreading influence that they could have. It's not just that people are in cities, it's that they leave them on business, after their studies, moving on elsewhere, and their ideas spread. And so for Paul, cities became radiating centres of gospel ministry. I mean, think of Thessalonica, capital city of the Roman province of Macedonia. And the church there became an example, even beyond their region, not because it was so amazing. There were no smokes and lights, no smoke and lights there. Not because they were so amazing, but because it wasn't amazing. It was just healthy. Thessalonica was just a healthy church. Listen to what Paul writes to them. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Or think of Athens, university city of Socrates, Plato and Aristotle a city of architectural and academic brilliance with the brightest students of the empire flocking in before spreading back, back out across the empire. And when Paul arrives, what does he see? I mean, does Paul spend his days sightseeing, admiring the magnificent buildings? Oh, look at that, that's beautiful. Is that what he sees? No. Chapter 17, verse 16. He saw that the city was full of idols. 
literally under them, drowning under a sea of them. But what does the sight of all these idols do to Paul? Verse 16 again. His spirit was provoked within him. Now maybe you look at what is going on in society and the impact that it is having on our young people, you know, not least of which is their mental health. And maybe you feel something of the ache in Paul's heart. I really hope you do. But what are we going to do about that? You see, Paul doesn't just rant from his armchair like a middle-aged culture warrior. But neither does he throw up his hands in despair and say, the battle is lost, let's retreat to the hills. What does he do? He dives right in and he heads to Mars Hill, to the Areopagus, to the university campus of the day, and he proclaims that the God that they are all searching for is Christ. Well, think of Corinth. Because if Athens was the intellectual centre, Corinth was the commercial and sporting centre, host of the Isthmian Games and standing on an international crossroads. And as Stott argues, Paul must have thought, hang on a minute, if trade and commerce can radiate from Corinth in all directions, so too can the gospel. Or think of Ephesus, not just capital city of the Roman province of Asia, but a centre for worship of the emperor, and whose temple to the goddess Artemis or Diana was one of the seven wonders of the world. And Luke tells us that it was there that Paul was reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Now, we don't know exactly who Tyrannus was, but commentators agree that he was probably a philosophy lecturer who was happy to rent his hall out to Paul after his own lectures were over. And his name means tyrant. As one commentator says, whether that was a name given him by his parents or his pupils, we don't know. Whichever it was, Paul rented his hall and used it as a tool to reason, to show how the gospel made intellectual sense in a city that had given itself over to the worship of power and nature and sex and sport. Okay, what have those cities got to do with us? Well, what if Lausanne could become a radiating centre of gospel ministry? Are we Athens? No. But students and academics come here from all over the world before heading back elsewhere. What if we could grow in our ability and our capacity to influence them for Christ while they're here? And as you look at Paul diving into that sea of idols and heading for campus of the University of Athens, our new building is going to be right in the thick of campus. We are going to have the new health school on one side and the University of Lausanne and EPFL on the other, with students daily walking past our doors, 
if Paul had dived in, why would we want to sit on the edge? Is Lausanne Corinth? No. But the business and the sporting organisations that you guys work for? Maybe. So couldn't the gospel radiate from here as it did from Corinth? So what about using this space to host something on sport and faith? Or business and faith and not just academics and faith? Are we Ephesus? No. But think about Paul and the hall. Because maybe you are thinking, do you know what, I'm not sure about giving to this. You know, when we, we're not even going to own the, the, the main meeting room. Okay, I get that. I understand that. But let me ask you, let me ask you, did Paul own the Hall of Tyrannus? No. But he still used it as a centre for gospel spreading. And at least our hall is going to be owned by Christians and not a tyrant. Or maybe, as I've heard suggested, maybe you think, hey, shouldn't we take our money and go and build something all of our own up in the foothills of the Jura somewhere? Okay, believe me, I love the Jura, okay, and I love cows, and I love cheese, but where do we want to be? I mean, we are going to have the health school on one side and the gender studies department on the other. Where would you rather be? C.T. Stubb, the great British missionary who founded WEC, the World Evangelization Crusade, he said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Church, this building, right in the middle of where people live and work and study, this building can be our rescue shop. Let's give to that. As Christopher Watkins says in his great book, Biblical Critical Theory, there is nothing so radically subversive today as sound doctrine and godly living. Let us be the radical subversives of the day. Let's give so that we can gather, grow and go. Okay, but thirdly, Paul's ministry was others-centred. It was gospel-centred, it was campus and city-centred, and it was others-centred. Now over the weekend, the church retreat, we saw how Paul and Barnabas fell out over Mark. But no one could ever accuse Paul of not investing in others. Firstly, this book of Acts that we are looking at was written by Luke, not Paul. Why? Because Paul scooped Luke up and added him to the team. In Acts 15, he brings Silas on board. In Acts 16, he adds Timothy. In Acts 17, we read of Jason in Thessalonica and Dionysus and Damaris in Athens. In Acts 18, he's investing in Aquila and Priscilla who then go on and invest in Apollos. Or if you look at Romans chapter 16, you will see one name, you know, what names, one name, one person, one family, one household after another of people whom Paul has influence for the gospel. What has that 
got to do with the building? Well, parents, think of your kids and your youth. And those of you who don't have kids or youth here, think of their kids and their youth, because there are kids, there are youth. And then look at these rooms. These can become the places where, as a church, we continue to have an influence for good and the gospel in their lives. Places where that influence grows, as in turn, they influence others. Well, do you remember our event for Pride Month? Okay, what if we could run a whole series of events applying the gospel to contemporary issues, whether or not they're controversial, and use the cafe area, or the combined rooms upstairs, or the big hall to do it in, and to equip not just ourselves, but others, outsiders, other churches as well. But listen, if we are to do any of that, we are going to have to give to see it happen. And not just to the building, but regularly to the church. Now, I don't know, but maybe you're thinking, yeah, but we won't be around to see any of that. We'll have moved on by then. Sure, I get that as well. But isn't that the whole point of being others-centred? And isn't that the whole point of the gospel? You see, when Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't going for his benefit. When he paid the price of sin, it wasn't his price he was paying. It was yours. It was mine. And so right at the heart of the gospel is not self-interest. It is the radical self-sacrifice of Christ, a love that gives and goes. Let's be a church that does likewise. Let's be those who give, not just our resources, but ourselves, not because we benefit, but precisely because we don't. Because that's what Jesus did for us. Together, let us proclaim Christ, because we're gospel-centred. Let's dive into the battle, because we're campus and city-centred. And let us pour ourselves out for others, heart and soul, body and circumstances, publishing his mercy to the world, because we're others-centred. So, let's give generously now, before the end of the month, end of the year, and then let's give regularly. You can find details in the newsletter or on the little cards we've produced on the welcome desk or the coffee area. And let us give, not because we want to make our name great. We are not interested in building an empire. Let us give, not to make our name great, but to see happen here what happened in Ephesus. The name of the Lord Jesus was extolled and the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let's pray.